the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. You know, they tend to kind of toss around longest-running, old guy, all this stuff. 32 years, you really think that's long? I'm, I'm not quite sure. We need to hang around for another 20 or 30 <laughs> Just to confirm it. Good afternoon to you. Welcome. It is indeed the Tuesday, April 5th edition of Lifeline, and great to have you on board as we uh, meander our way through news headlines. Much to talk about today. A little bit later on, we're going to talk about what appears to be Joe Biden's appointment for the Supreme Court. 11-11 tie along party lines, but it's going to move to the full Senate for a vote, and some are predicting she will easily ride into confirmation with at least three Republican senators stepping over to the other side. be interesting. We'll talk about that a little bit later on tonight. I want to lead off, and you might have heard the story barely a week ago. March 31st, to be exact, Fox News announced that it's hired Caitlyn Jenner as a contributor to its programming. Many thought that the announcement timing was off only by a day. Let that sink in. And uh, as we take a look at this broader topic, uh, there are more and more states that are addressing the issue of gender dysphoria as it may potentially impact sports. Let's get more as we're joined by the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dake is counselor. Always a delight and a privilege to have you join us. I understand that there are now three new states that are considering passing some bills that would address the issue of what appears to be a, a significant paradigm shift where suddenly, essentially, men can join and participate in women's sports with an obvious advantage, though they may simply claim to be women. Tell us more about what's going on. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, there's a, a, a number of states that are, are moving in this direction, Craig. It's uh, very encouraging. Uh, where uh, right now we see with uh, you know the recent you know the, the, the swimming uh, competitions and other uh, other uh, you know wrestling and other tournaments, we're seeing that women are basically being completely shunned out of any opportunity to to win uh, in in female I stress female competition. So what we at Pacific Justice Institute are doing is we're working with state legislatures across the nation to help them adopt legislation that uh, will not prevent people who have gender identity dysphoria from competing. It just will make them compete uh, fairly with their own biological uh, you know, gender so that it's a fair competition. So if they're a biological male, they'll be able to compete with other biological males and likewise with females. Um, otherwise, Title IX, which was passed to give females an equal opportunity for sports and athletic competition, 
will be basically uh, truncated completely, and uh, and that it would be a terrible, terrible shame for those women who've worked so hard uh, to uh, compete and, uh, and and get scholarships. You know what, what surprises me about this broader topic, and I've addressed this several times in the wake of the Me Too movement and concerns over the way historically women have been treated um, in our society, and and wishing to address that issue, and yet. Within the context of this gender dysphoria topic, how we seemingly just turn a blind eye to to a real potential risk level here that not only cuts to the quick of things like competition in sports at multiple layers, multiple levels, but, but whether or not there's a potentiality of those manipulating the system for their own benefit. I mean, I, I would imagine if you took a survey of probably the vast majority of um, pubescent high school boys, they would tell you that if afforded the opportunity to go um, participate in women's sports or to get access to the girls' locker room, they they gladly claim that they are, uh, in fact, uh, you know, in touch with their feminine side as a means of gaining said access. I find that enormously troubling. Just just the level of potential risk here. And I'm and I'm I'm really trying to figure out why there seems to be this disconnect on the left that on one hand really wants to make certain that we do a better job of protecting women, and yet on the other hand seemingly doesn't understand how we need to go about doing that. Exactly. Uh, like I said, this sets the uh, equal opportunity rights movement for women back, you know, seventy years. Uh, and uh, it, it, it try, effectively is a major discourager for you know, for women to engage in any athletics because you know they can work their way up uh, to uh, and it be achieving uh, only to have it uh, completely snatched from them from a, a biological male that has obvious uh, muscular skeletal hormonal uh, advantage uh, developing and uh, you know throughout their life uh, you know and then as far as the privacy issue is also very problematic that we have a specific justice, we have a number of cases where we're, you know, defending the ability for women not to be naked and change and shower in front of a biological male, uh, the overwhelming majority of which who have gender identity dysphoria are still sexually uh, turned on by, by women. So this is very important for women to maintain their privacy rights, equal opportunity. Um, it's, a, it's a major fundamental civil rights issue that uh, is uh, at the crust of, of, a, uh, of, a, of, of, a, of a major setback for uh, privacy and, and, and equal opportunity. And, and as this march toward um, promoting and pushing, um, you know, the, the whole notion of transgenderism to the forefront, I, I'm just wondering before this entire experiment explodes in our faces. I mean, you know, the fact that you have some states... Um, that have had to go as far as saying minors cannot be allowed to have sex change operations until they reach the majority age of 18. It's like, really? We need a law to, to, to stipulate that? It, it, it just, I, I think parents should be terrified about what's going on here. Yeah, we, we represented a 16-year-old girl that was taken from her Christian family because she wanted to change her gender. We stepped in. The state of California was going to start the process. 
and uh, we stepped in and we convinced the judge to have her go back to her family. And at the end of the case, the girl said, you know, actually, I decided I don't want to be a boy after all. Wow. So that's that's what we're dealing with here. The stakes are very, very high, and uh, and the ramifications are, are tremendous, and um, that's why we uh, we need to be involved. And, of course, unfortunately, most or a lot of government schools, as a matter of policy, are pushing and promoting this with confused children without letting parents be aware of it. And uh, that, of course, is just uh, a clear breach of parental trust of my government school. Indeed so. And, you know, we've had this discussion many times down through the years that I, I continue to to uh, hearken back to my continued shock and dismay that in the state of California, if your son or daughter goes to the school nurse and complains that they have a headache, that nurse may not administer an aspirin without parental permission. And yet that same son or daughter can present themselves to the school nurse and say, you know, I'm, I'm uh, really contemplating changing my, uh, my gender. Um, in fact, they can assist with that entire process, and the parent has no right to that information whatsoever, much like abortion has no right to be aware that they facilitated taking a daughter to a uh, an abortionist. And I just, you know, t- t- talk about completely backwards and a, and a complete travesty when it comes to the protection or lack thereof parental rights. It's, it's pretty shocking, and it isn't a wonder based on that counsel, that more and more parents are exploring uh, alternatives to uh, public education, be it going the uh, homeschooling route or even private education. Yeah, in fact, we at Pacific Justice have a, a campaign to assist churches all across America to start church homeschool co-ops, which is a fantastic alternative. It's easy to do. There's four different ways to do it. Uh, we have an office, a new office we just opened for church empowerment for pastors uh, to make this very easy and possible. Uh, so there's a there's definitely a, a light at the end of the tunnel for many families and communities uh, seeking an alternative. Brad Dake is constitutional lawyer, founder, and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. More information available on the web at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. Let, let me uh, just kind of, um, in, in, a, in a shameless plug... <laughs> remind you that if you are one of the parents who is concerned about these trends in public education and you've reached to the point of of not just um, uh, outright frustration but being fed up to the point where you would like to explore um, the opportunities available through private or parochial education. Uh, We've got that special back-to-school, half-off tuition offer available, and you can go to backtoschool.com. No, halfofftuition.com. I'm trying to do this from memory, and I'm getting to be an old guy. So it's been 30 years. I'll tell you what you do. If you go to kfax.com and click on our half-off back-to-school offer, you can get more information. And just, you know, take a look at it for yourself and make the decision whether or not it's something that's right for you and your family. Again, kfax.com, the back-to-school half-off tuition opportunity. All right, with that, we're going to take a time out, come back to more of our conversation here on the Tuesday edition of Lifeline from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Final vote for Judge 
Ketanji Brown-Jackson before the 100-member Senate is expected this Friday. An update from D.C. from Mike Bauer. She is a, a qualified, intelligent, capable person, obviously very gracious. And on Monday evening, two Republican senators, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Senator Mitt Romney, declared support for Judge Jackson, with one other Republican, Senator Susan Collins of Maine, having already said she would vote for the nominee. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is expected to file cloture on Jackson's nomination Tuesday morning. Then there are up to 30 hours of debate allowed post-cloture, but Schumer's hoping that the allure of the two-week Senate recess will lead to an agreement to speed up the process and give final approval to Jackson. I'm Mike Bauer. Of course, the big question remains, even with the three on the Republican side swinging the vote over to um, support the president's nominee, again, Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, and Lisa Murkowski, what kind of potential blowback might they be facing politically? We get some insights to this entire situation as we're joined by Bob Zadek. Bob, of course, is a best-selling author. He is passionate about American history a leading authority in constitutional history, by trade, also a lawyer and CPA, and host of the longest-running libertarian talk show in America today, The Bob Zadek Show, heard locally here in the San Francisco Bay region every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. Bob, as always, a privilege to have you join us, and I'm just having to wonder, um, as this thing, again, coming out of committee, 11-11 vote, Um, Otherwise, I suspect it would have died had that not been the case uh, just by one single vote. Now going on to the full Senate, which is a bit unusual, particularly where historically we've seen, at least in recent years, uh, pretty much um, the vote along party lines. But uh, with the three that have decided to uh, cross over and support Biden's nominee, I'm just curious from your perspective, what kind of potential uh, what kind of potential fallout could be faced by Susan Collins, Mitt Romney, and Lisa Murkowski? Probably, you know, it's interesting that we are discussing the appointment of a justice to the Supreme Court, uh, a justice uh, or a, an occupation that uh, trades in objectivity, uh, nonpartisan application of the law, uh, uh, testing it against the Constitution, other principles as well. But these are judges. And uh, they're called justices, of course, if they're on the Supreme Court. And the first question we find it necessary to discuss is the political fallout from the vote for a justice. The fact that we are talking about political fallout when talking about the appointment of a justice means, would suggest that we are there. We are at a place, which of course we're not there now, we've been at a place for some time, but look at what we almost take for granted, that when it comes to appointing a justice to the Supreme Court, we discuss politics. We don't discuss judicial philosophy. We don't discuss judicial competence. We discuss politics. That whole process is infuriating to me. We should be discussing what kind of justice will this justice be? 
we should be discussing how likely is it that the world will uh, be better or worse by the test of our living under our Constitution with or without this justice. And yet, no one talks about that. We talk about, is Romney going to be primaried? Is Murkowski going to be primaried? You're right to talk about it, because it's what everybody talks about. But it's what it's not the way that branch of government was designed to be a political branch. Therefore, the conversation is not supposed to be political, but it is necessity. Well, and, and I, I want to wholeheartedly um, say that I, I share your sense of frustration, maybe even uh, a dose of consternation over the notion that I led off with that question and the fact that the dialogue seems to be heading in that direction. But I have to wonder if we are, in a sense, victims of the very process itself. And I pose that question because it's within recent memory for, well, frankly, most of us that there was a debate at one point in suggesting that, well, when a president barely has a year left in office, it isn't appropriate to to confirm that president's nominee for the high court. That's what we were told by then-Senate Majority Leader. And then we fast forward a couple of years, and then we're told, oh, it's fully appropriate that we confirm an appointment to the high court by the president, even if there's only a matter of weeks remaining in his term, because after all, the Constitution says nothing about the timing of this. And so I wonder if perhaps, in a sense, the very people charged with the responsibility of engaging in the confirmation hearing, the process, and then, uh, you know, going to going to a vote to confirm or deny a presidential nominee position on the high court, if we've kind of created that monster for ourselves. We certainly did create that monster, but the we is the... Um, federal legislature, the House and the Senate. You and I have discussed often in the past when the topic was ripe for discussion. We have discussed, we have agreed that there has been a continuing abdication of responsibility by the legislature, who is much more concerned about gaining re-election than actually passing uh, sensible, thoughtful statutes. Uh, immigration being one example, which we've talked about quite often on the show. So where you have an abdication, it ends up by default being the Supreme Court that has to fill the void, also the executive branch to some degree, and the Supreme Court then deciding if the executive has exceeded its constitutional or his or her constitutional authority. So the abdication of the House and the Senate means that the Supreme Court finds itself legislating through the judicial process, which makes the whole system kind of ineffective, unsmall-D democratic, and that's, which means the legislate, the judicial, now becomes the political branch by default. So it's quite natural that now we're discussing politics because by application by the legislature, 
the judicial becomes the legislature, thus it becomes a political branch and operation. Thus, you and I talk about politics instead of talking about constitutional um, theory. And thus, your question was quite natural. You had no choice. We have no choice but to talk about it because the legislature has forced us to look upon the judiciary as a super legislature. And that's why we are talking about it. It it throws, it, it upsets the very delicate balance of power that the Constitution had created through our founders. Um, it throws that all, it, 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 mess, it upsets the balance of power, and therefore we end up with no real political branch that is elected. We have a political branch that's not politically elected, only indirectly. And thus, you and I talk about politics when we are talking about a Supreme Court justice, when we should be talking about judicial philosophy. Of course, uh, soon-to-be Justice Jackson didn't help matters. When she was asked about her judicial philosophy, she copped the plea and revealed nothing about her philosophy, except she occasionally mentioned originalism um, either because she really believed it or because she felt she had to do that to uh, curry favor among the Republicans. Who knows? I'm not a mind reader. But um, she did use those terms, so she was a tiny bit revealing uh, maybe what she thinks or what she wanted people to think she thinks. Who knows? We will find out when she joins the bench. You know, one of the bigger issues here, and and, uh, I want to have you opine on this when we come back, after the break, and and I, while I thoroughly concur that that to be sure, uh, the manner in which this whole process has been over politicized by both sides of the the aisle, by the way, uh, it, it not only upsets the balance of power, but but my fear, Bob, is that it also, in a significant fashion, undermines the authority of the high court. Now, now perhaps while not so much on paper. But in the minds of Americans, if, if, if sort of the, the last stop, the final arbiter and protector of all things constitutional, the Supreme Court, is badly politicized to the point where every American consistently sees decisions handed down by the high court as being politically charged, legislation from the bench, things of this sort. My fear is what kind of water, what kind of damage does it do to democracy, little d, below the waterline if it undermines in the minds of Americans the very authority of the high court. Bob Zadek is with us today, best-selling author. Bob, by the way, unpacks many issues of this sort on his program, The Bob Zadek Show, nationally syndicated, heard locally here in the San Francisco Bay Region, Sunday mornings live at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. We invite you to tune in, check the program out. I think you'll find Bob's topics, his guests, quite compelling, informative, and and something that will not only help educate you, but as he does uh, frequently on this program, help challenge us to higher and better thinking as well. Bob Zadek Show, information available on the web at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K. We take this time out. We'll come back with more of the discussion as Lifeline continues. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're discussing tonight with best-selling author and syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek the um, confirmation hearing, which sounds like it's going to move to a full vote for Justice Brown as soon as this Friday. The feeling is with uh, at least three Republicans having stepped over to uh, support the nominee, likelihood is she will be confirmed to the high court. There's been some hand-wringing. I don't know that this is going to be any sort of a, a major philosophical shift on the court. It's going to remain a 6-3 conservative vote, or 5-4 if you include Roberts, I guess, some his occasional whims. Um, the, the big question is whether or not over a period of time, predating this nominee, predating Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Barrett, uh, if there has been a slow march toward, in, in some respects, defiling the process, and maybe that's the appropriate word, defiling the process, over-politicizing the process, where, as Bob Zadek points out, it not only upsets the balance of power because suddenly you have the high court acting more in a, a legislative fashion than in a judicial fashion. But I wonder if, too, Bob, if ultimately the damage being done here, again, maybe not seen but down below the waterline, is undermining the very authority of the court where nobody takes it seriously anymore. Boy, you, you hit the nail on the head, Craig. Um, and I'm going to respond uh by introducing what I'm going to say, um, by telling you, I just returned from a visit to a, a meeting in Atlanta. Uh, why am I telling you that? Because Atlanta was the scene, or Georgia was the scene, of an important event affecting the Supreme Court in around 1823. Uh, and it deals with the very point you raise about what happens if the Supreme Court loses the respect uh, which a co-equal branch of government loses. In, in 1823, um, Andrew Jackson, then the president, and a rough guy, very tough guy, he wanted to, there was this huge... Uh, Native American tribe, the Creeks, C-R-E-E-K-S, the Creeks Nation, uh, which occupied huge amounts of land in Georgia. And they occupied it because of a treaty um, entered into by a prior administration. Well, Andrew Jackson wanted that land. So he ordered the, the federal army to remove the Creek and kick them out of their ancestral home and move them farther west to some really crummy land. And the Creeks, it was a huge nation, and they, uh, and they took the president to court, and they sued to enforce the treaty. And that case went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and Craig, the Creeks won. And the Supreme Court said that Andrew Jackson, then president, didn't have the power to move the Creek Nation, and we're talking about tens of thousands, to move the Creek Nation off the land. And Jackson famously or infamously did it anyway, saying publicly, the Supreme Court doesn't have an army. I do. Wow. Let him stop me. Wow. And he was, what he, so he moved them. Now, we, so we saw the answer to your question. It was 
we were, for that moment, a country without laws. And that's what it looked like. Not only that, but apropos of your point, um, in the Federalist Papers, which were a series of 80-odd essays written by Hamilton, Madison, and John Jay, all under assumed names, but everybody knew who they were, in support of the ratification of a constitution. Hamilton observed, I think in Federalist 79, but that's from memory, I could be off by the number, that the Supreme Court, the court in general, but the Supreme Court, was the weakest branch of government because it had no army to enforce its rulings, and it had no money except what other branches of the government gave it. It had no money and no army. How could it have any power? And it has the power only because we as a country have a part of our DNA. If it's the law, you obey it. No discussion. So when you so what happens, Craig, with with your question, is what ha- once we lose respect for the law and those who interpret the law, we lose our country. Therefore, the Supreme Court, if they lose respect, it's all over. It's that important, and we have we have seen that and perhaps other instances, but, but I was just reminded of it, Craig, maybe 48 hours ago when I was doing some touring, and I was reminded by the tour leader of that event, which I'd long since forgotten about. You know, the frightening thing, and you've really helped to make this far more crystal clear, and I hope everyone really captures the depth of what's being said here, that it's one thing for the court to hand down a ruling, but it has, as you aptly point out, Bob, no enforcement power. So it kind of rides on a sense of historical honor and respect as we have long held as Americans that the final arbiter in questions related to constitutionality or lack thereof of laws or actions made by either Congress or lower courts would always be um, ruled upon within the Supreme Court, and their word was the equivalent of, thus saith the Lord. But the minute you start to significantly question that and disrespect that and challenge that, ultimately then we find a nation that is no longer um, honoring the rule of law. And so much of what we do in this country, Bob, is really on the honor system. And, and the minute we start to act in a dishonorable fashion, or we have branches of government acting in a dishonorable faction, fashion, so much so that Americans just say, we don't respect you, we don't put any weight in what you say, we don't have any regard for you, and then all of a sudden, um, the, the, the final authority that the high court has enjoyed since its founding uh, will slip away, and I fear along with it, our, our country too. Your point, I think, is very valid. And, and not only that, but, uh, Craig, we all have seen um, in uh, movies or in the theater, we all have seen when the, le- the locus of the scene in the movie is a courtroom. Maybe it's a county court, a lower-level court, or a state court. And we all have seen some judge loses his or her temper, bangs the gavel, 
and directs the bailiff of the court, I want that person in contempt, grab him right now. And what do we see? We see the bailiff or the sheriff or whoever has the duty of enforcing court orders going in on the spot, taking somebody who the judge has found in contempt and putting them in a jail cell. So that county judge has more power than Justice Roberts. That county judge can enforce her rulings. Justice Roberts or, or any other Supreme Court justice cannot. And that's mighty scary because the only way their rulings have any meaning is, as you have said, out of respect for the system because we, we all must have a system. We must have a system of laws. We simply accept the fact, if it's the law, we must honor it. Otherwise, the word is anarchy. So it's pretty scary. So Roberts, who is considered to be an institutionalist, Roberts is one who works very hard to preserve public support for the judiciary, which I find at times to be not purely what a judge should be doing, uh, but on the other hand, I understand how important it is for the Supreme Court to remain the most respected, which it is, of the three federal branches of our government. Bob Zadek with us tonight. We're discussing not just the Supreme Court nominee, which again will go to the full Senate for a vote. Uh, potentially as early as Friday. But when we come back, I want to switch gears and head off to another topic. Uh, There has been a vote in the United States House of Representatives, um, pretty much along party lines, although you might be surprised who actually uh, switched over and joined the Democrats in voting in favor of looking at the issue of legalizing marijuana in the United States. We're going to talk about that next as Lifeline continues. Our guest today, Bob Zadek. Again, his show, The Bob Zadek Show, heard Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock on our sister station, 860 AM. The answer, more information available on the web, podcast, resources, copies of Bob's books by going to bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 37 states, you may not be aware of this, 37 states have legalized marijuana for medicinal or medical use, 18 for recreational use. And um, in the last week, the United States House voted on party lines 220 to 204 um, to approve a proposal. The Senate's working on a version of its own. Um, that would push the issue of legalization of marijuana across the United States further forward. One of the arguments, of course, is that there is this <laughs> federal law that um, generally is not enforced but could be problematic against states that, like California, have authorized not only medical marijuana but also recreational marijuana. Some say it's way too late and high time, no pun intended, to address this issue, particularly since those that typically get arrested and spend jail time for violation of marijuana laws are usually minorities. Bob Zadek, let's get some insights from your perspective on this. Uh, House passed the bill decriminalizing marijuana. I suppose in the Senate that could be a much tighter vote. 
Uh, well, it's, uh, the conversation we're going to be having in the rest of the time we have is either going to be political, uh, that is, likelihood of passage. Uh, we could discuss it from the standpoint of should it be a matter of federal law at all, or should it be a matter of state law? Uh, or we can discuss the fact that um, as a matter of constitutional law, does the federal government have any powers at all to regulate what people put into their bodies voluntarily on an informed basis? So there's, there's so much, as you like to say, Craig, to unpack, but to comment just briefly on the um, claim, the supported by data claim, that over time drug laws have been, if not enforced along racial lines, but they probably have, but drug laws have had a uh, disproportionate adverse effect upon minorities rather than upon white people, either in sentencing or in who gets accused of the crime. So for sure that has been the case. And just uh, a few syllables, if you will, about the history of drug regulation in this country. There, for the first 125 or 35 years, there was no regulation. Whatever you wanted to put into your body was allowed, be it alcohol, be it opium, be it cocaine, be it marijuana. None of it was regulated. And you could buy it over the counter, and it existed. In about 1913, the first federal legislation was enacted the Harrison Act, which started to regulate marijuana and opium. At the time, it was the beginning of the second uh, of the progressive era, Teddy Roosevelt and the like, and there was a huge racial component. The, the, the minorities in great dis, disfavor were blacks and the Chinese. Asians more broadly. Chinese were thought to be purveyors of opium, the alleged opium dens and the like, and it was aberrant behavior in the minds of the whites. Blacks, Negroes, which they were then called, were felt that heavy users of marijuana, and the New York Times actually found and shared on my show a long time ago articles from the New York Times that claimed in the news section that marijuana had the effect of making then-called Negroes sex-crazed, more prone to rape white women, and better pistol shots. And therefore, they could kill more white people on marijuana. There was hysteria. And it was all racial. And so they enacted uh, the first laws to control opium and marijuana directed at Chinese and blacks. So it, in the earliest days, it was racial in nature. 
fast forward, fast forward to the Nixon administration. Nixon had two enemies he despised, hippies and blacks. And in a conversation that was recorded by the famous Nixon tapes, therefore it exists, Nixon realized he could take care of both groups that he despised, the hippies and the blacks, by declaring a war on drugs. A, he could attack both at the same time, and he did it. And that was the second genesis of the war on drugs. Reagan didn't help matters, of course, but it started with Nixon, again, racial in motive. So you're so correct, Craig, in identifying the racial component of this, as well as many other federal statutes, which we'll discuss on other shows. Ugly history, and it's almost indefensible on the ground of personal liberty to make an argument how the government cares what a consenting, competent adult does with his or her body. It's our body. After all, the women's movement on abortion, it's my body, judge, that of my uterus, that stuff. Well, I agree, it's somebody's body, you have autonomy over your body, you can do what you want with it. And nobody else has to be concerned. Of course, the issue here that many will find very problematic is the the long-held notion that this is a gateway drug, that it's going to lead to other types of abuses, et cetera, et cetera. But the problem, of course, is that you've got, as I mentioned at the the onset, uh, 37 states that have already approved it for medicinal purposes, 18 additional that approve it recreationally, and and I'm afraid that this is the equivalent in trying to fight at least this aspect of the war on drugs, like you're trying to bail out the bay with a thimble. Not only will it take forever, but it will continue to fill back up, meaning in the end you'll really accomplish absolutely nothing. Many have argued down through decades now uh, since some of these uh, laws were put into place in the 19-teens and 20s that we've essentially been trying to bail out the ocean with a thimble. And here it's gotten us nowhere but put a lot of people in jail, cost tons of money, created huge enforcement problems. And uh, and sadly, this disparity between the way the issue is treated at the federal level versus the state level means that whether we like it or not, if you're against legalization of marijuana, the battle is already being lost at the state level. And so it's going to be interesting to see uh, where eventually this goes, whether or not uh, indeed there is a companion bill or, 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 a, or a challenging bill that comes through the Senate. I don't suspect that this is going to be a vote that we will see a change in federal law that we will see anytime soon. But I will predict that not only is it coming, uh, but we've seen some high-profile Republicans in the case of the House vote step over to the other side of the aisle. Um, Brian Mast of Florida, Matt Gates of Florida, California's own Tom McClintock, all casting yes votes for this proposal. We'll see where it goes. We'll continue this conversation at another time. Bob Zadek, again, we invite you to check his program out every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock on 860 AM 
The answer, Bob unpacks many of these issues, kind of like peeling back the layers of an onion to give you deeper insights to not only understand the history of many of these topics as well as the constitutional uh, historical viewpoint, but then, too, uh, talking with many of the uh, opinion makers and leaders that um, help challenge our minds in terms of where we go as Americans moving forward on many of the hot topics of the day. The Bob Zadek Show again, Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. On the web at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. 601 from KFAX. Let's get you a look at, no, what's coming up next, right? Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 